0: So I got an update on my uh, son's friend's dad. He did not get hurt at the trampoline park.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Apparently he's has some sort of horrible stomach virus and had to go to urgent care for it, which now my son just appears to be a ticking time bomb. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
0: I feel bad saying this, but I wish he would have gotten hurt instead, you know?
2: (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where Single Banana and I, GreyGhost81, discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on RFGeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter. This month we're going all the way back to the original Game Boy to play the first two games in the legendary Super Mario Land series. Do these quirky titles hold up, or are you better off sticking with Mario's console adventures? Stay tuned to find out. You can listen to the show on iTunes and Podbean. On Twitter, I'm at RFGPlaycast, and Rich is at the single Banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to RFGeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening and now on with the Playcast.
0: So my uh, 11 year old is downstairs watching my three year old right now so that I can record because my wife had to go get my son from a sleepover because apparently they went to a trampoline park today and now the dad's having to go to urgent care. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) I know. I don't know what happened yet, but uh, I can't wait to hear about it. They're actually supposed to be coming over to our house tomorrow. We're having like a neighborhood party and stuff. And so that's why I couldn't record on Sunday.
1: Oh goodness, well, I hope he's alright, and uh, watch out for those trampolines, folks.
0: If he's not, I've got some oxycottons in my safe from my back surgery I can hand him.
1: Oh, don't do that to the (laughs) poor guy, come on.
0: (laughs) Uh, So what's up, man? What's been going on?
1: Uh, Not too much. I am just rocking and rolling, been trying to run a lot, as usual. It's funny, we talk about fitness and health and goals and things a lot here, and I've, I've actually gained a lot of weight. I've been really crappy with my eating and working out habits, and I tend to have disordered eating. I have an addictive personality, and I overeat a lot in the evenings. So even when I get into shape, I always kind of backslide into those bad habits, and here I am again, trying to flip the switch and get back into just doing the fasting, doing the keto, doing a lot of exercise, and I've been pretty hardcore over the last week or so, I would say, and I'm already kind of starting to feel better. So
0: I'm struggling right now with an icy pop addiction because oh, it's really? summertime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those little icy pops, man. I'll eat like seven of those a night. <laughs>
1: Well, it's funny you should. I would recommend what (laughs) I like those too. uh, So what I do is I make them myself. I bought um, silicone ice pop molds off of Amazon, Mm -hmm. and I take spearmint tea and put a little bit of lime juice in it, and it tastes like a mojito. And there's no sugar, no calories. It's
0: really good. I'd probably put some liquor in there too. So well, you can.
1: (laughs) Of course, that doesn't freeze very well.
0: Had to get a little more constructive. Maybe I can make the pop into like ice cubes. I actually have space invader molds. So I can make them into that and then drop those in the alcohol.
1: That could be good. Yeah.
0: There you go. I'm the MacGyver of uh, icy (laughs) pops.
1: So now that we have this regular segment of corrections, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. What mistakes did our A-hole friends point out from our previous show, which was on Twisted Metal 2 and Twisted Metal Black?
0: Well, I gotta say, man, our list this month looks like a damn eight-year-old's Christmas list. It's so long. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but I gotta say, the person you're about to talk about gave us a really good rundown. and it, Oh, yeah. I got nothing but love and respect for someone who's gonna listen to our show and analyze it in that way, you know? Like, yeah. I have nothing but gratitude for that, but we can roast them for doing it at the same time.
0: Absolutely. I think I told him <laughs> online. I was like, okay, so that makes you king for uh, you know coming up with all of these. <laughs> so congratulations, Crabmaster 2000, king for the month of July. So a few of the things we talked about, we didn't make mistakes, but we just forgot to mention them or we couldn't think of the names of certain things, you know? One of the first was, I was talking about a Bruce Lee movie with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which I sent you a picture of, which is oh yeah pretty <laughs> unbelievable, but this movie was made. And uh, the name of that movie was Game of Death. And it's funny, I thought about it like five minutes after we got off the call, of course. That's how it goes. But I just wanted to mention that in case some of our listeners wanted to check that movie out, at least watch the scene with uh, Bruce Lee fighting Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which is just mind-blowingly slow and horrible. But then I also mentioned the singer I went to see while I was in Austin, and for the life of me, like looking at the Luster Pearl's website and just going to all these different rabbit holes of trying to find out this guy's name, I never could find it, so my apologies. I mean, I scanned Facebook pages for over an hour and a half trying to find this guy, uh, just to give him a shout-out, but uh, sadly was not able to do that. And then we had also mentioned calypso from twisted metal looking like one of the skylanders villains remember that yeah and so i figured out the name of that guy was actually chaos and if you've played twisted metal black somebody had to steal from the other i mean there's no way that this is such a coincidence chaos calypso both start with the same sound so there has to be something there and then the other thing was uh, something you had said at the end of the show, we were talking about Danganronpa, and you had mentioned that it was an exclusive to the Vita, which it is kind of, most of the Danganronpa games are on the Vita, but then they actually put this collection together of the first and second game, which is actually available physically on the PS4, so you can play it that way as well.
1: Yeah, and that's that's a good clarification, and it's only good news for us, because it means Absolutely. there's more ways to play the game, So, and I did know about that, it just slipped my mind. Uh, yeah. Happens I promise. It the best of us.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so getting to our good buddy Krabby's list that he had for us, you know, we were talking about our question of the month. What car would you drive? And he mentioned the Pontiac Sunfire. And just like we thought, this was a car that he grew up with. And he mentioned that the car had magnets on it and stuff. And he said that this was because... His wife and his in-laws and all these other friends and stuff had somehow always ended up backing into this car, running into it like it had a magnet on it. And so, yeah, we were basically right talking about the Pontiac Sunfire, just the goodness of that vehicle. And I think I had a few friends that had that car too. And those things are like tanks, man. They're kind of awesome. And then some things he pointed out about the Twisted Metal games. In Twisted Metal 2, the enemies actually do take lava damage. I don't think that they really take it as they're driving through it, but what you can do is every car, and here's another mistake we made, every car can actually shoot a freeze beam out. It's just part of your arsenal, and you can actually freeze them in the lava, and they would take damage because of that. Now, it's not a heavy amount of damage, as Krabby mentioned, it's like machine gun fire, so it's very little compared to what you take by driving through it which I felt was very excessive I don't know about you
1: yeah I don't that's too much you yeah. know <laughs> yeah absolutely
0: another thing that Krabby pointed out was that black is sort of its own entity and it's not a continuation of the series which you know we were kind of wondering about could we relate the characters and the storylines behind that game to the original series and it's just kind of a standalone game on the ps2 so that was interesting and then he also mentioned that head-on, is actually a direct sequel to Twisted Metal 2. So since that's a PSP game, that sounds like something you might be interested in playing.
1: Yeah, all these facts are really good. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say except, again, <laughs> thanks, Crabby. We, we did miss a lot of details, but it's good to come back and talk about them.
0: Well, he had one more.
1: There is one more. It's a good one.
0: Yeah, and that was the <laughs> Twisted Metal game that was made for PS3. Once again, I had another date slip and had written down that it was 2003, which I don't think the PlayStation 2 was even out at that time, and it was actually 2012, so i got to ask you, Sean.
1: Well, hold on, hold on, because you just said PlayStation 2, so you took a mistake, you put it, another mistake on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're trying to say, a, you said a PS3 game was out in O2, and the PS3 was not even out then.
0: Right, the PS3. You're absolutely yeah. right. Man.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what's with you in years man i
0: don't know i i gotta know man did you did you sabotage me on the last outline did you mix in some dates did i have them no. down correctly
1: no you didn't i wouldn't do that i want the show to run smoothly and you, i want uh, your okay, editing job right. to be as easy as possible <laughs> right right I never troll you like that uh, okay
2: <laughs>
0: all right i guess i'll believe you for now but, uh, like you said, thanks again, Krabby, for pointing out these mistakes and uh, anything that we omitted during the show. Thanks for always listening, and also thanks for joining us in the playthroughs each month, which you've done every single time this year, does not go unnoticed. And uh, also thanks to all of our other listeners and players each month. So, anyway, Sean, Concert Cast, you got anything?
1: Yeah, concert cast is a good one for me this month. I scored some tickets and I can report back on the Rebecca Black show cuz that was last week, I think. It was really good. She was amazing and it was just such a treat to see her and you know, watch her perform live and even though she was actually using a pre-recorded music Uh, via a laptop. She had a live drummer, so that added something to the performance, but it was her performance that made it memorable. She's a great singer, just some really funny banter in between songs. She's just such a lovely person that it, I don't know, something about her entire thing just endears her to me so much. It was just so awesome to see her live and in person. And then I actually wasn't really interested or we talked about this band, Man-Man. I had never heard of them. That's the band that she was opening up for. Mm -hmm. And uh, they actually turned out to be really good. And I'm glad I stayed for them, not only because they were really good, but also because Rebecca Black came out and sang one of their songs with them. So I got to see a little bit more of her, which was a real treat. And it was kind of cool because... When Man Man came out, they were wearing these like robes, like they looked like they were a cult. It was kind of <laughs> funny. They had this like whole stage presence going on. And when she came out, she was wearing a robe, but it was like different colors from theirs. So she looked like special. I don't know. It was, it was really cool. And actually, the song she sang on, I would highly recommend it. And hopefully, we can throw it into this episode. It's called Head On, Hold On to Your Heart. Just a great song, catchy, great lyrics. Again, just wholesome and nice. It's that's really the theme of this whole show, is it? Uh, uh, not this episode of this podcast. <laughs> I am talking about the show I was at. <laughs> Everything was just nice. No beers were thrown. No, yeah. you know, nobody moshed into me or punched me or whatever. It was just really nice. Uh, again, I am glad I stayed, and it was cool too because, like, when Rebecca Black did her set. It was still light out. It was very early. You know, this was on a Tuesday night, I think. Mm-hmm. And people were just kind of milling in. And of course, she's up there just killing it. And I could hear people talking around me. And they're like, wait, who is this? Who, Rebecca, wait, wait. Rebecca Black, the, the Friday chick, like they're, you know, realizing that what they're seeing on stage, you know, and it's like the whole thing I talked about last month about like her hero's journey, basically to become right. like a really good pop singer. So yeah, that show was awesome. And then as far as scoring tickets, the hits keep coming. I'm going to see Shonen Knife again. I've talked about them in the past. They play in Austin a lot. I'm kind of surprised. Um, The first time I saw them was in Brooklyn about five or six years ago when I still lived in the Northeast. And I didn't realize that they play Austin a lot. I've seen them twice here already. and No, I've only seen them once here. I'm going to see them again. And they played last year too, but I didn't go to the show. So... I want to go see them again, because they're very good live, cool. and just an awesome, awesome band, and then I am going to see Gouge Away again, so a lot of repeat business in this concert cast, but uh, Gouge Away was one of those bands, like I said, when I when I went and saw Touché Amore, they were the openers, and it was one of those things where the opener just blows you away, and the, I've followed them since, and... I named their previous album as one of my albums of the year last year. And actually, I convinced my wife to go with me to see them because (laughs) it's on a Friday night. And um, I just said, like, I don't know if I can get Corey to go to this one with me. And uh, I'd love for you to go with me. And she's like, yeah, I don't know. And I said, well, they're kind of like a vegan protest band and she's like oh really okay (laughs) because my wife is vegan so yeah um on their first album especially a lot of songs about like being vegan and being against animal testing and all this stuff it's good and even though i don't necessarily agree 100 percent with that lifestyle our listeners know i'm against animal cruelty in any form so i can identify with their passion for sure so i'm taking mrs gray ghost to see gouge away with me and we're both very excited about it cool
0: name of the band definitely from the uh, pixie song gouge away of course
1: yeah yeah they've confirmed that and it's funny i saw in an instagram post uh, they did like an ask me anything and Mm -hmm. somebody said did you get your name from the pixie song and and she said yeah we did and for some reason it pisses off pixies fans (laughs) which is so such a weird like gatekeeping thing it's like Hey, they're just a kick-ass band. They took their band from the song of a really good band. Like, what's the problem with that, you know? A lot of bands do that. There's so many bands out there that just take their names from other bands' songs. I think it's a cool tribute.
0: Yeah, why wouldn't you be happy about your favorite band getting more exposure in any form? It's just like people whose music is in like a podcast or something or, you know, on YouTube and they're wanting to sue for usage rights. It's sort of like, you know, when people hear this stuff, it's probably going to make them download your stuff and you're going to make even more money than you're going to make by getting it removed, you know?
1: Yeah. You know that guy, Rick Beato, who I've talked about in the past? He has Mm -hmm. that YouTube channel where he he talks about music and music theory and stuff. He did a really good video on copyright strikes and demonetization and all this other stuff on YouTube. And he was saying, like, if I do a video on the Beatles and you guys shut it down, that's like you're cutting off maybe potentially a younger audience who's never heard of the Beatles and the way I explain music maybe resonates with these particular people. Mm-hmm. And they could have been introduced to the Beatles and you could have made your money that way. But instead you shut it down and, you know, my audience won't learn about why the Beatles are so great kind of thing. Yeah. So I understand protecting copyright and all that stuff. Absolutely. But there's got to be a better way because in that way they're cutting themselves off at the knees.
0: Yeah. And you and I, we don't monetize. Um, I should put that out there. We don't make a cent off anything we do. We do this out of pure love For our listeners and for ourselves. So, yeah. If you hear something you like on here, please, please download it. Give those artists some money. We really encourage that. All right, man. Is that it for you?
1: Yeah. So, how about you? Scored any things or you want to talk about music at all or anything?
0: Absolutely, man. Took my kids to see Iron Maiden.
1: Ah, that's right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was awesome, man. My son's funny. He just can't really hang, he gets really tired. So, he made it through most of the show. He made it all the way to the encore. You know, he enjoyed it, but my daughter, uh, she's 11, and she and I just, like, headbanged to, like, the entire show. We just <laughs> loved it. Now, this was the Legacy of the Beast tour, and what Legacy of the Beast is? Iron Maiden has a phone video game, and that's what this tour no, no. was based off of, which, in essence, is kind of lame. But at the same time, the cool thing about it was all they did was play hits. That's it, man. I mean, the set list was mind-blowing. I said it to our buddy, Crabmaster. I'm like, look at this set list. He's like, oh, my God. This is <laughs> amazing. I think I even put it on social media, and people were just like commenting on it as well. It was incredible. And for me to be a father, to take my kids to a show, that's the kind of show you want to take your kids to, you know, where they're going to hear all the songs that they're familiar with. And so it was a perfect night. There's a lot of shows that I go to, and I'm just like, I'm getting kind of tired. I'm just kind of ready to go home. I hope this will wrap up. Even if it's some of my favorite artists, I'll be that way sometimes. But not with this group, man. We still had a two-hour drive ahead of us to get home, and I was just like, I hope they keep coming out. It is so awesome. It was such a great show. So, If you have a chance to see Iron Maiden on this tour, Legacy of the Beast, do it. Pull the trigger now. It is amazing if you're a fan. Highly, highly recommend that show. And uh, was such a great bonding time with my kids, you know?
1: Yeah, that's awesome.
0: Now, as far as tickets are concerned, I haven't picked up any tickets. I'm getting ready to go pick up our B-52s, OMD, and Berlin tickets, which is a show that's coming to our small amphitheater here, and it should be wonderful. It's highlighted as probably one of the best shows of the summer. And uh, I encourage other people to go out and get tickets for that as well. I just learned that new pornographers are coming in November to a town about, I'd say about three hours away. So, I don't know if I'm going to go see that show or not. I really like the band, but I haven't heard any of their newer stuff. This is a band that's like a super band comprised of Nico Case, A.C. Newman, Destroyer, and a few other indie stars. And I've seen them before in the past on the Challengers tour, but uh, yeah, I would like to see them again. They're fantastic in concert, but... I think the show is during the week on like a Monday night or something, and you know, unless I take off work, it's hard to go see a band like that, and I hate taking time off work to go to those shows. And speaking of, in the same town, my coworker has asked me to go see a band, and you'll have to tell me if you've heard of this band before, Mac Sabbath. Do you know anything about Mac Sabbath?
1: No, but I really hope it's like a Vaporwave Sabbath tribute band.
0: Well, maybe even better. They're really not a Black Sabbath tribute band, but they come out dressed as demented McDonald's characters and play metal. Oh, goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Now, understand that their music is not very great. My coworker compared them to Guar, which... You know, Gwar's music's kind of hit or miss. I like some of it, and it's good, but you mainly go for the show, right? And what you see. And so this is the type of band that they are, but I highly recommend that you go online and just Google a picture of Max Sabbath. It's fantastic. Evil Grimace and uh, Evil Ronald, of course, are just amazing. So, uh, yeah, check that out if you get a chance. But uh, this really isn't concert news, but something I did musically last weekend was a organize my vinyl collection, and this got quite a bit of buzz on social media, so I wanted to mention it. My vinyl collection probably now is somewhere between twelve to 1,500 albums. And so I have this big shelving unit that is made at Ikea, and it's especially for people that collect vinyl. And you can get it in various different sizes, and it's very reasonably priced. So I decided that Since my collection was in alphabetical order completely, I wanted to break it up into genres and then alphabetize it by genre and label it on my shelves. I've been talking about doing this for quite a long time, and you might think that that took me like the entire weekend, but my daughter helped me just pulling records off the shelf and already had my categories set out of how I was going to prioritize my music in genres. And so she handed it to me and I was just like kind of spreading it out and keeping everything in alphabetical order as I went. And it really took us a little less than two hours to do the entire collection, which I think is pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, that's neat. And it's an interesting way to organize any kind of collection. And it did cause quite a buzz (laughs) on Twitter (laughs) because people were trying to wrap their head around how you were actually doing Mm -hmm. it with single artists who have literally different albums and different genres sure. i and the one thing that pops into my mind is if you had the beastie boys some old bullshit, which is a hardcore punk album, or you had License to Ill, which is a rock rap album, or if you had Ball's Boutique, which is a rap album, like would they be in uh, different uh, areas? It kind of breaks my brain to have <laughs> artists uh, broken up like that. Is that how you were doing it?
0: No, uh, I actually didn't do it that way. And you make a good point, And our buddy Kevin Buried on Mars was the one that was kind of questioning it because he's mm-hmm. a big vinyl collector too and he just he's like i don't see how you could do that i mean you mentioned the beastie boys but other artists such as bruce springsteen do you put that in like classic rock or do you put that in like folk albums because albums like nebraska are more folk you know whereas some of his later albums like born in the usa he would say probably classic rock but what i do man is for the beastie boys are always known as a rap group i mean that's primarily what they're known as and if i'm thinking about the beastie boys personally I'm going to look into rap, right? It's the first thing I think of. So the thing is, and what I tried to convey to Kevin, is that doing this organization and putting these things under genre is just a personalized thing. You're not doing this for anyone else. You're doing it for yourself. For me, the reason to do it like this and to put it in genre is because I'm always in different moods. I listen to all kinds of music. And I know you do too. You know, some days mm-hmm. I want to listen to jazz. Some days I want to listen to like a movie soundtrack, video game, OSTs. Some days I want to listen to New Wave, which I have a huge New Wave collection or metal, hair metal. And so it's nice for me to go over to my record shelf and be like, okay, this is what I'm in the mood for. Let me look at what all I have under here instead of having to look at 1500 records and remember what I have it's just a way of breaking it down and making things easier and my wife thought I was insane for doing this and after I did it she was like wow this is great this is such a better hands-on way to know what you have to be able to listen to everything you have in a lot easier manner and so that's why I did that but to get back to your point and what you were saying is you really just want to individualize it like how do you feel about this person how do you usually think about this person With Springsteen, I don't think of him as a folk singer, really. I really think more of him as classic rock, so that's where I have him in my collection. And then you have a genre such as classic rock and pop, which most places, if you go to, they use. It's sort of like drama for DVDs and Blu-rays, right? That's kind of like the catch-all category, if something doesn't fit. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, totally. And so
0: I have this classic rock pop area where I've put my albums into, and it's just kind of a a fit-all and, and it works really well. I think it's up to the individual as far as what genres that you listen to, what genres you choose. There are some that I put together like electronic and trip hop because they all seemingly are like electronic music, even though one has sort of a rap element to it. I put rap, R&B, and soul into one category. And, you know, I put blues and jazz and can't remember, something else into the same category because I don't have that many records of some of those. So I can just put them all together and find them easier. Really, it just depends on your personal preference and what you have in your collection and what i say is don't struggle over where does this go where does that go just make an instant decision as far as where you think would be the easiest place to find that album you can't be right or wrong it's your choice
1: yeah of course i love this and you're really speaking my language uh i know you and i have this kind of principle of the games usually or the records they're there to please you and you said something like it makes you happy You are your own gatekeeper, (laughs) and it's your damn record collection, and you can arrange them upside down or sideways, you know, you can put them in a closet, you can display them, and you can arrange them any way you want, and as you were talking, it actually dawned on me that most record stores, and specifically the library that I go to, they are arranged by genre. And when I walk into the library, I go straight to the pop section. Then I go to the hip hop and rap section. And then I go to the rock (laughs) section. So it is possible. And especially in a home private collection, I love that the spirit of doing it your own way and that the collection is there to please you.
0: Yeah, I mean, think of it like if you go to a flea market or something and someone's got a table set up of like thousands of CDs and they're all just out. They're not alphabetized They're not in genre. Think about how long it takes to go through all that to find or possibly find what you might be looking for. You know what I mean? It's irritating. And so I think this just simplifies the process. And like you said, it's to please you. I mean, if you're worried about someone coming over and say, oh, my gosh, this should definitely go over here. Then I just think that's just a crazy way to look at it. It's all about you and how you feel and how you can put your hands on it the quickest. And so, you know, that's why I did
1: it. Hell, yeah.
3: Your door You don't
0: And well, I have some movie news. I didn't get to watch any anime this month just because I've been so busy and uh, preparing for this beach trip, which we're trying to record a little earlier than usual, so I can have this to edit in my spare time while I'm down at the beach. But one movie that I did have a chance to watch, I was actually out sick from work this past week, And uh, my kids were at home and I had purchased the movie Ready Player One because I was like, well, it's as cheap to buy the Blu-ray as it is to rent it on TV. And it wasn't on any of the normal places like Netflix or Prime or anywhere like that uh, that were with my subscription. So I said, you know, I think my kids will like this. So I'll give it a shot. As Some of you may know, I read the book a few years ago. I did a book review piece on our site, and for the front page at RF Generation, you can still check it out on my blogs. I was really impressed with the book and loved it a lot, and I had some huge reservations about watching Ready Player One, basically from a lot of the feedback that I had heard about it and how it differed from the book so much. Now, Sean, is this a film that you've seen yet?
1: Yeah, actually, I wrote a review of the film for the site, so our listeners can go check that out too. That was back when um, when Travis was doing the RF Cinema, which he still does, but it was it was he was trying to launch it as kind of a regular thing, and mm-hmm. I did a couple of movie reviews for his label, and uh, Ready Player One was one of them. So. I will hold back. I want to hear what you <laughs> thought about it before I refresh your memory on on that. Okay.
0: Well, like I said, I went into it with a lot of reservations and I was just kind of like, well, you know, something my kids might enjoy. And after we watch this, we can kind of do it backwards and read the book after we get through watching the movie together. You know, it'd be something we could do at night. But anyway, I started watching it with an open mind and I actually really enjoyed the film, and I thought it was done really, really well. One of the things that I did notice about it is a lot of the 80s nostalgia, there was a lot of stuff that was missing from the book, and I think this is what a lot of people were upset about, and the fact that the three challenges for the keys were definitely different than what they were in the book. I don't know why they made these decisions, and maybe it had something to do with licensing, but... At the same time, I thought they did a good job with it and I wasn't really concerned about that as much. It was just kind of a fun movie and something that I enjoyed quite a bit and I'm shocked that I did. There are a lot of 90s references in the movie as well and you know more modern references to stuff like Halo instead of being just for 80s nostalgic geeks like myself. So I think it appealed to a much wider audience than what the book did, and I think that some of the decisions that were made were very clever. Yeah, I mean, my kind of final thoughts are, a very enjoyable movie. Glad I bought it, and I think it's something my kids now will definitely watch again in the future.
1: Well, that's pretty cool. I can't fault you for that. I felt like when I saw the film, it was just a lot of flash, a lot of CGI, a lot of like cashing in fan service kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. I wasn't too bothered by the differences from a book because that's inherent in adapting a book to a film. But I think my biggest takeaway from that film was that it was just too much CGI, which makes complete sense for a movie that takes place in a virtual reality world
0: yeah I was gonna say the whole thing pretty much takes place in the virtual reality world so it totally makes sense I was kind of thrown off by that too when I saw the previews you know what I mean
1: yeah I think it's not gonna age well and I think I mentioned that in my review of it I wonder how you'll feel about this movie in 10 years I'm starting to look back people can do this anyone can do this look at like Forrest Gump at the time it was heralded for its special effects or like the Mm -hmm. first toy story Which is still by all means very impressive for the time, but yeah Special effects on a technical level that aren't done practically don't age as well as practical effects I've watched tons of youtube videos on Movies and i'll see something like I saw a clip from Forrest Gump the other day where Tom Hanks is superimposed into the john lennon interview on a tv talk show and it just didn't look good like it's like yeah. wow at the time i remember thinking like wow it looks like he's really there you know <laughs> but seeing it now <laughs> yeah. it's like wow that looks really bad and contrast to that if you watch like carpenter's version of the thing with all the practical effects and it totally holds up so yeah i wonder with a film like ready player one and th- that's not the only movie like there's so many like i recently saw Godzilla, King of the Monsters, the most recent American Godzilla movie. I thought it was pretty good, but it's like it's nothing but CGI. And I wonder how that movie will look 10 years from now, 20 years from now. The special effects, I think we're going to come to a point where we say these aren't aging well at all. The digital special effects.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely in the camp of someone who likes films prior to a lot of CGI as far as like the original star Wars, I think are so much better filmed with toy models than they are with all of the CGI and all these characters. And so I'm very aware of that kind of thing, but I think one of the things that you said was the majority of the story takes place in a virtual world. So in that essence, it doesn't bother me because it's a part of the story. And I think this will hold up fine. I don't think I'll have a problem with this later on. And I'm not as nostalgic about it as I am something like Star Wars. I mean, it's not like a big blockbuster hit or like Forrest Gump, like you mentioned before. I remember the summer that that came out, and that was a huge blockbuster. I mean, like, I saw it a month after it came out, and we had to sit on the front row with our heads craned back at the theater just to watch it because the place was still packed. And so I think we're more critical of things that are huge successes than we are of things like Ready Player One that was just sort of a speed bump, if you will, right. in regards to film. So I don't think that I'll be looking at it as harshly in the future as I will something that was bigger piece of pop culture. I mean, you can kind of take it for what it's worth. I thought it was a fun movie; it's enjoyable. If you can rent it for a few bucks or watch it on Netflix or Amazon Prime, I think it's worth checking out. And uh, I think they did a good job with it. I, I don't, I don't have any complaints. So that's yeah. just my take on it.
1: No, that's totally fair. I think you could do way worse as far as oh, just absolutely. watching a mainstream movie. So yeah, you could watch
0: Avatar. Right.
1: <laughs> Speaking of like major blockbusters that haven't Garbage. aged well. Good grief.
0: Uh, I don't think it aged at all. I think it sucked from the beginning. Unobtainium, seriously. Yeah. All right. I'm going to let it go. All right. (laughs) (laughs) They did make a hell of a pinball machine out of that movie, though. So I will say that. The pinball machine is fantastic. Nice. (laughs) I'll give it some props. There we go. A little positivity. Awesome. All right. Speaking of positivity, let's talk about the reaction that I got when I said that I enjoyed PlayStation 1 more than I did the Sega Saturn
1: wow this was such a weird thread and you tried to pull me into it and i wasn't i'm like i'm not touching this i just posted a dad joke
0: (laughs) i'm gonna make you touch it now
1: (laughs) no we could talk about it here that's fine i just wasn't gonna mix with the Cretans on twitter about it (laughs) oh my gosh man no one was on my side on this (laughs) no one which is so strange i
0: mean oh god i had no one i was like please somebody jump in and help me out here
1: Yeah, this is really weird. And as much as I love them both, I mean, come on. The PlayStation 1, just the library alone. I mean, you can make the case, as these guys were. The Saturn had some better shoot 'em ups and some better this or some better that fighters. You know, it's very well known for having good fighting games and all that. But, like, if you were stuck on a desert island with either one of those consoles and the entire libraries of those consoles... I don't believe for a second that anybody with knowledge of the libraries would choose the Saturn over the PlayStation. And maybe maybe you would, but I don't believe you.
0: <laughs> and the thing that irritated me most was that the fact that everybody wants to bring import games into the discussion. I'm like, no, I'm not talking about import games. I'm talking about what we got in North America. Well, it's so easy to play import games now. Yeah, I get that. I have some import games but at the same time, let's just talk about like what it is in North America. Let's not bring that into it. And besides, what percentage of import games can you actually play? You can't play any RPGs. Right. And what I pointed out is there's like seven RPGs on that system. That's it. So if you like RPGs, which system are you going to pick?
1: Right. And the RPGs on the Saturn, not all of them, but they mostly cost a fortune because they're rare and they're all very expensive. We talked about Albert Odyssey last week and yep. you know, there's a handful of others that are just crazy.
0: Yeah, and close to 50% of them are shining force games. Right, so you're right. talking about like one series, right? <laughs> So, I don't know. I don't get it. I I get that, like, you know, with shmups, if you looked at that category solely, yeah, I mean, Saturn's probably going to have a better selection of shmups. But if you're looking at it as a whole, and if you like RPGs and even fighting games and stuff like that, which there are a lot of good fighting games on the PS1, I don't know. I, I think it's a graphical fan service like I know that the graphics aren't as great on the PS1 and I get that I'm fine with that it doesn't bother me I'm more into gameplay than I am graphics yeah clearly the Saturn wins in that category but I'm not into fighting games at all and I felt like with the Saturn and the Dreamcast both of those systems were attuned to people who love fighting games and it's not my bag baby so (laughs) to each their own but I'm like you, just looking at the libraries, I find it hard to imagine that anyone would pick the Saturn over the PlayStation 1. Yep. Just my thoughts. And hopefully, I'll get some other people backing me up on this.
1: Yes. But having said that, I can see the mentality of rooting for the underdog because, again, Uh, as I've mentioned many times, my Twitter feed is filled with so much Vita and Wii U stuff. And I do see people saying that the Wii U is better than the Switch and all this other stuff, and I try to stay away from that kind of stuff. But I get the mentality of trying to boost the Saturn and give props to the Saturn. Another thing I would say though is that Saturns are not, they didn't sell as well, the console is not as easy to find. Like I said, the games are really expensive. They're more prone to disk rot from what I understand. PS one games can be played on PS threes. They can be emulated way easier than the Saturn. You can play PS one games on your phone. You know, you can play PS one games on the Vita, the PSP, PS one and PS two, like there's so much easier access. There's so many more games and they're so much cheaper. So I think, you know, the PS one is a way more democratic system and the Saturn has a little bit more of a mystique because of its rarity and hard to findness. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And like we said, like every system has something that they do well. Yeah. But just put a list of the RPGs beside of each other, it's not even close. The only thing that comes close to the PS1 as far as RPGs and this is in my opinion is the Super Nintendo. And maybe it's just me being a fan of RPGs though. I love shmups too. I have almost every shmup for every system. So that's something that's very dear to me and something I consider. But like you said, if you were on a desert island, which one would you pick? I think it would be a no-brainer for me.
1: Yeah. Well, let's move on to the anime segment of our podcast, the, reg- <laughs> the now regular anime uh, segment that we will have every <laughs> month going forward. We didn't discuss this. <laughs> well, I'm going to talk about a TV show anyway, so I thought I'd sneak in another one that I watched. Uh, It's called Little Witch Academia. It's on Netflix in North America, and it was produced by my favorite studio, which is Studio Trigger. They made my favorite anime of all time, which is Kill La Kill. And unlike Kill la Kill, which is very fan servicey, very over-the-top action, colorful, bombastic, sexual, all that stuff, Little Witch Academia is actually a very wholesome, family-friendly, nice, has great lessons, great morals, and it also has a lot of comedy and action and stuff, but I was just surprised that it's such a good change of pace for Trigger and just really wholesome and family-friendly. And there's two seasons on Netflix, and I actually wound up just going straight through both of them in a very short time because i was really getting into it and i i just liked it a lot so i had to shout that out as a good anime recommendation
0: now is this something that my daughter might enjoy watching is it yeah i think so
1: yeah no it's rated pg if i had to give it a rating uh similar to our movie system There's no sexual stuff at all. No fan service in that regard. There's no foul language that I can remember. I would recommend it for your kids. Cool. And then the other thing I watched recently was the newest season of Black Mirror. And I'm bringing that up because my latest article on the site was a review of the episode Rachel, Jack, and Ashley 2, which was the episode that featured Miley Cyrus and... I just wrote my thoughts on it. It got a mixed to negative reviews, actually, but I tended to be more favorable on the episode, and I actually watched it a few times because I liked it so much. So you want to check out my review on that. I do acknowledge the criticisms of it, but I have a few personal reasons for why I really enjoyed that episode, so check out my review of it on the site.
0: All right, man. Well, let's jump into news. So, Sean... Are you ready to make the plunge and buy a new Switch so that you can color it up a little bit?
1: (laughs) Well, this is a great news item because it throws back to something we talked about in the news that we then had to correct because we jumped the gun on this announcement. Or we were just really prescient in knowing what Nintendo was going to do. But no, in all seriousness, they finally officially announced what they're calling a Switch Lite which Mm -hmm. is a mini version of the Switch. It's portable only. It doesn't have detachable Joy-Cons. It does, however, have a real D-pad as opposed to the four-button, quote-unquote, D-pad layout on the current model of the Switch. So a lot of people are excited about that for playing their retro stuff and platformers.
0: I did not know that. Yes, I would be happy about a D-pad.
1: And it's going to retail at $199.99, so $200. It comes out in three colors. as a yellow, a blue, and like a gray. And I, at first, was head over heels about this. I really wanted it because I thought, oh, finally, a smaller Switch. I've mm-hmm. said in the past, the Switch is too big to be truly portable. I want one that's more like the Vita. But I've actually looked at some specs and I've looked at some people have mocked up like comparisons to the current switch and also to the Vita. And it actually looks like it's only a little bit smaller than the current switch and still like a lot bigger than the Vita. So I might still grab one. It's pretty cheap, but i was like red hot like pre-order take my money now like when it first got announced and then i was like well it's still like kind of bulky i'm not sure Mm. so maybe i'll have to hold one in person before i make a decision but i don't know for you though
0: (laughs) i don't know man you know for me the problem i have is that it's a handheld now it doesn't have any compatibility with the tv right
1: true so that's another big trade-off that you're making
0: where do we get the name Switch from? We're not able to switch from one to the other anymore. <laughs> we have just reinvented another handheld Yeah, is where we're at now. And we're just calling it the Switch because it has the same compatibility as far as games are concerned. But that's the only difference. So, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't think I'm down with just a handheld. I think I want something to be able to play on my TV. I'm still... More of a console gamer, whereas I know you're more of an on-the-go gamer. So it's just the difference in our lifestyles and how we play games. So that would be my only reservation about the new Switch. Though I do like the colors, and man, you just really interested me with that D-pad announcement. So uh, who knows? I might have to change the way I play games.
1: Yeah, something to think about.
0: So, yeah, pretty cool, but uh, we'll see how it goes. But officially, the DS is dead, and we can say that now
1: the ds and the 3ds and the game boy (laughs) (laughs) the game boy is not dead baby we're gonna talk about two game boy games today it's alive and kicking (laughs)
2: Uh,
1: alive and kicking
0: all right well before we get into talking about the game boy games let's go into our pickups sean you want to start
1: sure because i don't have anything Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah no pickups for me this month you know our show releases on a pretty regular schedule but when we record can vary our last show was recorded not that long ago and i'm actually back in that selling mode again trying to get rid of some stuff before i bring anything in so unfortunately no scores for me this month so what about yourself
0: yeah, I mean, a lot of my scores this month were from friends and stuff that I had in the mail and that was on its way to me from last month. Like you were talking about, we had like a very small break in between, but I was still able to score some pretty good stuff. For the PS4, I probably scored the most games this month. I got a game called Bendy and the Ink Machine. Have you seen that one?
1: Yeah, I've heard about this.
0: Yeah, I love that sort of animation. It reminds me a lot of Cuphead, yeah. you know, that old school... Cartoony, almost slightly evil looking animation. Yeah. So I picked it up. I've never played it, but I read the back of it and I was, you know, really uh, interested in the story. So yeah, definitely want to check that out. My copy of Bloodstain Ritual of the Night finally came in the mail and uh, really happy to have that. Picked up a copy of Hollow Knight because our friends Duke, Togo, and Crabmaster have been insatiably talking about that in our gaming forums. Yeah, it sounds like a really cool game, and again, um, I like these kind of oddball type of games, and then apparently in this one it's like a world full of bugs, so I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, picked up a game called Super Dungeon Bros, which I think is a four-player game, and one that... I definitely want to play with my middle son, I thought we could enjoy that together. I picked up a copy of This is the Police 2, got a copy of This is the Police 1, which is a police simulation game, I believe it was probably a little over a year ago. Picked up the second one for that, it's an enjoyable simulation that um, I like quite a bit on the PS4. And then I found a copy of Tetris Effect for sale, which people have been going nuts about, and my wife's a huge Dr. Mario and Tetris fan. The only game that she will play out in my multi-cade cabinet in the garage is Tetris, and she'll go out there and play it sometime, so I picked that up and thought she would really enjoy that. And uh, currently looking for a Dr. Mario cabinet for her, because that's her favorite game. For the 2600, I picked up a copy of Demons to Diamonds, the uh, Sears picture label, and a copy of Freeway, which is the blue Activision label. This is a subset that I'm collecting for And I'm almost finished with that, which I'll speak about in just a minute. My buddy Retro Nonsense sent me a copy of Canyon Bomber, which is the Sears text variant. And he also picked up a copy of Ghostbusters, which is also the blue Activision label. And I think he got these at maybe too many games. And then uh, our buddy Sensei Man over in Japan sent me some overseas goodness. I got a copy of Rockman 7, which, as most of you probably know, is Mega Man 7, which is a very expensive game for the Super Nintendo. But if you get the Super Famicom version, it's around the $20 mark, which is about what I paid for it and was happy to get that. also got a copy of Valus for the Famicom, and he also sent me two Super Famicom controllers At an incredible price. And uh, again, I can't say enough that you need to check this guy's stuff out on the site. Uh, Just go to our forums at RF Generation, and look for our buying and selling thread. The prices are incredible and the shipping is dirt cheap. It takes about a month or so for you to get your stuff, but completely worth it for what you can get it for. And then recently, I was on Facebook and... I was in the marketplace and saw that there was a video game swap in my hometown. My wife was away at the beach that weekend, so I took all three kids to this video game swap at this bar (laughs) in uh, downtown Greensboro, and um, it was pretty cool. It wasn't an event that had vendors, but it just had a bunch of people who had created a Facebook group from around the state, and they just met at this central location to swap and sell games. And uh, I actually picked up a complete copy of Rocket Knight Adventures, which I got for a very cheap price because I was able to swap a few games for it. And so it worked out really well for both myself and for the seller-collector. For the Super NES, I picked up a copy of Dream TV, and I picked up a copy of Smartball, which I ordered off the site JJ Games. This is just a site that I had found out about the guy... That runs JJ Games also runs PriceCharting.com, and I thought I would try to order a game that was cheap that I couldn't find locally. The game came quick and was really pleased with what I got. Needed a little cleaning up, but I knew that from you know the pictures that I had received. And uh, speaking of pictures I'd received, JJ Games actually posted something on our website in their blog about a little setup that they did to take photos of their games and how you can build your own, and uh, actually promoted that to the front page of RF generation. So if you get a chance, be sure to check that out. And then in my normal honey hole, I sent you a picture of this, right, Sean, I picked up a copy of Lufia and the fortress of doom for a cheap price because it had stickers and marker on the label, Sean.
1: (laughs) That's so awesome, man.
0: Yeah. So uh, that was one that I had been looking for for a long time. I think I mentioned this in one of our earlier podcasts maybe about a year ago that I had picked up that same game at the same store and when I got it out to the car I checked it out a little bit better because it was in a case and it was a fake copy of the game and I took it back in and they basically swapped it out for me and I think this was a day or two later. They were very kind about it and gave me my money back and everything. So it was really cool of them to do that. And then the last thing I picked up was a Famicom Disk System game. It was one of the last ones I was looking for. This was a copy of Kick Challenger, which is a game where you run around as, like, a tomato guy, and uh, you just run around these boards vertically, and you kick things. <laughs> so,
1: Very simple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, everyone was like, those shoes he has on, they look like Nikes, which is... Kind of cool because when I got it and I opened it up, my game is actually complete and it has flyers in it. And there's actually a contest flyer in there from Nike. So they sponsored this game. So I thought that was neat. And um, on RF Generation, I was able to scan all that stuff in and put it in there with pictures of the game under extra media. So you can go on RF Generation and look at that. So uh, collectors out there, they're trying to have a, quote, complete copy of that game can see what all comes in it.
1: Awesome. Well, you got enough scores to make up for the fact that I didn't have any. So that's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm trying to settle down on my scores a little bit. But uh, like I said, this was just stuff that I had ordered months ago and didn't realize that, you know, it was going to be coming in. And a lot of it just kind of fell in all at the same time. So it just kind of worked out that way for scores this month. So Sean, tell me what your plan. I know this list is going to be big. It always is. You always uh, overshadow me in this area.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm actually trying to get back into reading. It's it's so funny. My whatever it is with my personality, I go in waves. Like yeah. I'm either listening to only podcasts or I'm listening to only music. It's never a mixture of the two. <laughs> I just go on these like manias with things. So if I'm Playing tons of video games, and you're going to hear about it on the show. But right now, I'm trying to read a lot. I'm going back into trying to focus on reading books and not be so addicted to screens and having my brain be scrambled by social media addiction and all these other things. So, trying to just read books, but I do have something to talk about. I'm still playing the two games I talked about last month, which was uh, Knights of the Old Republic 2 on mm-hmm. the original Xbox. And I'm still working through Brave Story on the PSP. Cool. But another thing that I've gotten back into... I don't <laughs> say is, you play
0: multiple games at the same time. We've talked about this before. I cannot do it.
1: I try to keep it limited, actually. I try to do one console game and one handheld game max. Mm-hmm. But this next title has always been in the background for me, and it's Metal Gear Solid Five. Oh, yeah. I got pulled back into it. I don't know why. (laughs) I just had an inkling to fire it up one day. And the thing about playing that game is I kind of had hit a wall the last time I stopped playing to the point where I didn't really know what else I could do. You know, I... I got a trophy for 100%ing all the dispatch missions. And like I said, I had all my bases built out. Never spent any money on a microtransaction. But just by farming the currency that's in the game, by signing in every day, they give you a little bonus of it. Uh, I was able to buy the maximum amount of bases to do the online play. Uh, So anyway, blah, blah, blah. I discovered that each main story mission has these mission tasks that you can do and sometimes they have nothing to do with the actual mission itself sometimes it's something like capture a certain exotic animal while you're playing this mission so i thought well maybe i'll go and tackle those you know Mm -hmm. the cool thing about it and i didn't realize this until i started doing it is that you can just drop into a mission, do one of these objectives, and then just quit the mission. Hmm. You don't have to go and complete the mission to get the objective. Like, as soon as you do it, you're good. So if you see on a mission list, I did one last night. It said, destroy the helicopter. And the helicopter has nothing to do with the mission. It's just flying around one of the locations on the mission. So I equipped a rocket launcher dropped into the mission, took down the helicopter and quit right back out of it. So now I'm just kind of knocking out these uh, mission tasks. And I just still, to this day, I have on my stats, I'm almost 800 hours into this game. Wow. Uh, I've been playing it for almost over, wait, it would be over four years I've been playing this game, I think. (laughs) Right? Because I've been Yeah, I've been almost four years at my job, and I started playing it when I was unemployed. I was in between jobs. So yeah, it just keeps giving. And as I started playing again, I realized like some of my teams were leveling up, and I was finding new weapons to develop and new characters. I started playing online again, stealing other people's stuff off of their bases, which is always really fun. Again, going down that YouTube rabbit hole of tips and tricks and cool stuff that you can do in Metal Gear Solid I've just been sucked back into it. It's kind of crazy. My wife thinks it's awesome. Isn't that funny? Like (laughs) 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 she was the one who recognized that, you know, Neo Turf Masters was actually turning me into a bad person. But (laughs) she said, like, it's pretty awesome that you could buy a game however long ago. And I bought it day one and paid full price for it. And that it's given me almost 800 hours of enjoyment. You know, you don't get that a lot with games. Unless it's like a World of Warcraft thing or a Call of Duty online game. You know You what don't I mean? get a
0: lot of that from your wife either. Because my wife would be like, 800 hours. Look at <laughs> right. how much of your life you've wasted.
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> it's true.
0: And I think she said that about Warcraft, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I mean... I don't disagree with that at all. That's one of the reasons I don't play Call of Duty. Actually, a coworker was asking me um, if I wanted to play Fortnite, yeah. and I was just like, "Nope, I don't want to get involved with like an endless online thing that I could get addicted to. Uh, no thanks. I don't so think you would. That, I'm it's totally all about in-
0: microtransactions, and so I don't think you would.
1: Yeah, that too. But yeah, with this game, I don't know. It's just really comforting and I just feel like I'm in my element when I'm playing this game. So
0: Nice, man. Anything else?
1: That's really it. I haven't even started Danganronpa 2 yet. So uh, Besides the Mario Land games, which are about, what, an hour or two long a <laughs> piece? Uh, I haven't been playing too much of anything else. All right. Very cool. So, Rich, what have you been playing?
0: Well, man, I said the other month that I wanted to get into playing more handheld stuff, which made me go onto to Twitter and talk about how I was enjoying all this handheld goodness that I had been playing, where I had been playing the Mario games on the Super Game Boy, and you totally called me out for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we'll talk about that a little bit later, but another Game Boy game. That I have been playing is one that I actually picked up last month. It was an RPG known as Night Quest. And the few RPGs that I have played on the Game Boy, I have really, really enjoyed. And so I had heard some fairly good things about this game, although I had heard that it was short, which I know that probably very much appeals to you. It's probably only about a four to five hour game, it's very linear and it's just a little basic RPG. I actually really enjoyed this game. It was just a really nice, easy RPG for me to play through. Now, you know, some of the tactics and stuff on the game aren't the greatest. Basically, the way it works is each enemy has a weakness, and you have four different types of attacks. Well, each attack looks pretty much the same. There's not... A whole lot of variation in the attacks but if you pick the right attack for a specific enemy then it takes off more damage than the other three attacks would so it's really kind of a game about memorization as far as what does the most damage to enemies there are spells in the game but you have to have items to use the spells. so I played the entire game without using spells And so, you know, there are some things that are implemented into the game, like spells that just don't work as well and just make the game a little off balance. But um, this is one that, um, I don't know, I still had a really good time with it. The storyline on it is pretty good and it progressively enhances as you go through the game. It's one of those Game Boy games that's not the cheapest, usually between 60 to $80 is where this one kind of falls in line. But, you know, if you come across it for a good price, I would say definitely one to pick up and uh, add it to your Game Boy collection. Because um, it's just kind of a nice little fun game and actually a great game, as we've mentioned before, with some of the other games that we've played, uh, like Rhapsody is a nice little gateway RPG for, like, kids or someone you're just trying to maybe get into RPGs.
1: Sounds awesome. Sounds like a bit of a hidden gem.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's not one you hear much about.
1: (laughs) I had never heard of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not on the same level as Final Fantasy Adventure. I can't give that much credit, but I gotta say, the more I dig into the Game Boy library... For something that was such a simple concept and something that was basically at the outset was just going to replace the Game & Watch and be just really simple, short games, it's just amazing some of the quality of games that you get and you know, the sprite work in some of these games, even at the earliest handheld iterations and something that's just in, you know, I say black and white or green or white or however you want to describe the screen on the Game Boy, yeah it's just fantastic the more i dig into this library the more i really really love it you know
1: yeah totally big fan of the game boy which we'll get into but there are a lot of <laughs> a lot of lesser known games that are really good <laughs> on that system absolutely
3: <laughs> i am a man who walks alone and went out. Walking a dark road At night or strolling through the park When the light begins to change I sometimes feel a little strange A little anxious when it's dark Fear of the dark Fear of the dark
1: So, as usual, we'll kick off our game discussion with our question of the month. Our games this month are Super Mario Land 1 and Super Mario Land 2, and it inspired in you, Rich, this question, because you came up with a good one that at first I thought it was kind of funny, I had trouble coming up with an answer myself, but the question is... If you could eat a mushroom that made you bigger or smaller, which would you choose, and what would you do at that size? So this was a good one. We put it on Twitter as we always do at RFG Playcast and at The Single Banana. Follow us to participate in the Question of the Month. But basically, we got a bunch of <laughs> d- jokes. And
2: <laughs> 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 I
0: knew that was coming. Yeah, I, I totally knew that was gonna happen. <sighs>
1: So I don't know what that says about the men quote, Quality unquote, of I'm our answered that yeah. way but <laughs> 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 But yeah, let's jump right into it. At Collector Cast, our good friend Duke Togo says, "I'd grow bigger and see what it feels like to be Bickman 2K size for a bit." <laughs> 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 so I've never met Adam Bickman uh, in person. Have you?
0: Uh, yes, I have. He is a giant of a man, 16 shoe size.
1: Okay, he's got me beat. I only wear a 14, okay. so... <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Do you know how tall he is, actually?
4: Oh,
0: uh, I don't know. I-, I would say maybe 6'2", 6'3", but he okay. is a very, like, broad man. You know okay. what I mean? Just, just yeah, a, no. a physical specimen of a human.
1: Okay. <laughs> very good. <laughs> Okay, we had um, Sean, player one, from the Cartridge Club. He said he'd go bigger and try out for the NFL.
2: Okay, yeah. Very
1: good. Very practical answer. Uh, Steven Davis, former co-host of ours, The Disposed Hero, he just put a GIF of Godzilla. So right off the bat, he kind (laughs) of stole my default answer.
0: I was a big fan of that one. That was one of my favorites. Yep,
1: that was a good one. Um, we have buried on Mars, Kevin. He said bigger, the rest of my answer is not safe for work. And this Lassie started guy. the uh, yeah. the deluge here. <laughs> Um, we got one from the Pocky X, Tom. He said, it's almost as if you've never seen Legend of the Overfiend, <laughs> which again, he puts in some obscure, like I'm up on anime, but I'm not nearly as up on it as Tom is. He puts this obscure, I don't know what it is. So,
0: Oh, wait, do I know something that you don't know? Yeah, this is a classic, man
1: oh cool is it a conventional anime or is it a hentai
0: uh it's conventional man i mean it's okay. not pornography for the sake of being pornography
1: okay uh, yeah cool. it's, it's
0: just a classic so yeah you should check it out i haven't seen it in many years but i do know of what he speaks
1: gotcha cool um we got game boy guru josh he says smaller maybe i could use it to lose a few pounds
0: First guy to pick smaller. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, I, I feel that, as I said before. Um, now, I do have one more. That's my secret line to Crabmaster 2000. He makes a reference that maybe you can help me with because I don't know what this means. He says, can I do both? I want to make the world's best Hank Pym cosplay. Do you know what Hank Pym is? I do not. All right. I do not let's, know what Hank Pym is. Let's Google it real quick because I don't want to wait till next month to find out who it is. Oh, it's the um, it's the wasp.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, you mean Ant Man? Uh,
1: the yeah. The wasp is a woman. Ant Man. Right? So, Doctor Henry Pym is a fictional character appearing in Marvel Comics. It shows a picture of the um, Michael Douglas character. He in the movies is the original Ant Man. So Ooh. okay. I think. I don't know. I'm not big on these Marvel movies, but Ant Man and Ant Man 2 are actually two of the ones that I've seen. So it does kind of ring a bell. So there you go. That was a little roundabout, but that's all the answers I have. Oh, one more. Actually, my wife's answer, because I always ask her these, is kind of the same as mine. So I'll just default to like the same answer as player one. If I could make myself Maybe a little bit taller and like get into a good shape and do some kind of athletic competition. Maybe try out for a basketball team or some kind of power lifting event or something like, I guess I would do that.
0: That's where the money's at.
1: Yeah, sure. And when I asked Mrs. Grey Ghost about this, she said she wouldn't do it and her answer was kind of interesting she said like humans are the perfect size if you went too small you could be attacked by a predator and if you went too big you could hurt somebody so i actually <laughs> i thought that was a very well thought out answer like she wouldn't even take the ticket so hmm.
0: yeah uh, i actually got an answer from miss banana i asked her about this awesome awesome yeah And she said bigger, and she said that she could travel more and faster and see further. And then I asked her, I said, well, how would you travel? Because at some point you would have to go through towns and things like that. So you would end up crushing either people or animals. So there's like a big downside to that, you know?
1: Yeah. I guess it's like a risk reward thing because you are increasing your hazard and the danger that you pose.
0: So my answer for this and, you know, we didn't specify, like, how much bigger or how much smaller you would be.
1: Yeah, and to everybody's credit, nobody got into that, which I was half expecting, and I right. that can be a pain in the ass. Like, oh, what is? what do you mean? How much bigger? How much smaller? Like, whenever we ask these questions, just take it and run with it. Be creative. We don't care. Uh, just for the record, you know what I mean? Exactly right.
0: <laughs> it's like organizing your vinyl collection. Exactly, meme, right? exactly. So my idea was on this premise that I could grow larger or smaller, and then I could come back to normal size as quick as I wanted to. That's the way I took it. Gotcha. So I said smaller so that I could crawl through arcade cabs and pinball coin doors to jump up and down on the credit buttons.
1: <laughs> That's okay. Very good. Also, creative.
0: retrieve snacks from vending machines. There you go. Decimate my grocery bill by eating less and getting full. Yeah there you go very good it's all about saving money for me
1: yeah uh my wife brought up the movie downsizing have you ever seen that movie
0: i have not i'm familiar with it though is that matt damon
1: yeah exactly yeah yeah. um i wouldn't like highly recommend it. it wasn't really that great of a movie in my opinion but the concept is that you can like shrink yourself and then like food is way cheaper for the reasons you were just saying and like less of a carbon footprint you can buy a little house that's the size of a shoebox, and it doesn't cost as much because it's extremely like way smaller so that was part of that movie
0: well that's a good transition into our games of the month because in super mario land 2 there's actually a world called macro world where you're tiny and everything else is big right
1: yeah good point our games this month as we mentioned are super mario land one and two and i'll just roll into the participants here of course there was you and me and dougly 007 metal fro crab Master 2000 Mr. Stubbs or Mr. Stoobs, I really got to message him and find out how he wants it pronounced (laughs) because we've gone both ways a couple episodes now, and he's a regular participant. So I want to give him some respect. Easy Racer, Bomba Tomba, Duke Togo, Link 41, Disposed Hero, and our good friend Corey, Turn Around and Run. And Rich, I got to say, look at what happens when we play a Nintendo title and a Mario title. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say Mario game. Always happens. (laughs) Yep. So, great participation. Great back and forth on the forums. Opinion on both of these games. Comparing and contrasting the games. Highly recommend people go check that out. And we'll definitely read some of those entries as we go forward. So, as far as release data on the games... I'm going to confess something right now. I have great rundowns on both of these games. I got them both from Norm, the gaming historian's video on the Super Mario Land series, which I watched about an hour before we came on the air here and just took notes on that because he did such a beautiful job on these games. And as with most, if not all of his videos, they're worth checking out and He's just a really nice guy. I met him at a convention uh, a couple years ago and just a really nice dude and does really top-notch work as far as YouTube goes.
0: Yeah, I met him at the uh, first Retro World Expo. Just went up to him and uh, told him, you know, I enjoyed his stuff and he used to live in North Carolina, actually, and so I spoke to him about that for a little while and he actually invited me out to dinner with him uh, that evening, you know, just... Total stranger. And I uh, had to help run the auction, so I wasn't able to go out with him for dinner, but I've met him multiple times. Stand-up guy, does great work, and uh, yeah, definitely if you're listening to this, if you haven't checked out Gaming Historian, do that and uh, support his channel because he does some great work You know, as far as uh, digging into the history of video games. And uh, like you said, videos on uh, Super Mario Land, incredible. I I watched it twice this month stuff.
1: Yeah. And I I mean, that shows a certain level of respect on our part because we try not to do that. It's not a rule, but I know you and I have kind of a personal belief that we don't want to dilute or cloud our own opinions of things. I'm afraid myself, I'm afraid of just parroting something that I've heard in a YouTube video or a podcast. So I try to avoid doing that. But in this case, I've seen this video before multiple times and I thought I'm just going to go watch Norm's video for my research <laughs> yeah. on this one like I'm going to defer to him because he put the definitive work out on these games so
0: Absolutely. I mean, typically we're, you know, either googling or going to Wikipedia for a lot of our information as far as when these games came out and Norm just does the same thing in video format. Yeah. He definitely grew up on these games, so it gives you some opinions, but it really didn't affect my opinions on these games because I actually played them before I watched his video.
1: Cool. Well, let's get right into it then. Super Mario Land was developed by R&D One at Nintendo, and they were also the team that developed the Game Boy itself. Gunpei Yokoi produced the game, and Satoru Akata was the director. Shigeru Miyamoto was not involved in the game because he was working on... Uh, the Super Nintendo at the time. The composer is Hirozako Tanaka. The game was launched on July 31st, 1989 in North America, and it was actually a launch title with the Game Boy itself. That was the day the Game Boy launched. They had originally planned to have Super Mario Land be the pack-in title, But they decided at the last minute, and this turned out to be obviously a very good decision, (laughs) to do Tetris instead (laughs) because they thought it would have broader appeal. And They were right. They were very right.
0: Man, could you imagine making that decision? Saying, oh, let's pack in this puzzle game instead of going with something you know would be a hit and taking that chance? I don't think you could have gone wrong either way, but... I definitely think they made the right decision in that.
1: Absolutely. That's about the nuts and bolts on Super Mario Land 1, and I'll just give a quick rundown of Super Mario Land 2. It was also developed by R&D 1, but with a few different employees at the time, because this was years later, obviously. Mario Land 2 was released on November second, nineteen 1992, in North America, produced again by Gunpei Yokoi, directed by... Hiroji Kiyotake and Takahiko Hosokawa, Kazumi Totaka was a composer, and they took elements from the first game, and it's actually a direct sequel story-wise, even though for Game Boy games, it can be hard to parse that out because there's no cutscenes. Sometimes you have to read the manual for these kind of things, but it is, in fact, a direct sequel to Super Mario Land 1. So that's the nuts and bolts and release data on these games. Now, I think we can get into something that we talk about a lot, but a lot of times we talk about nostalgia and maybe in our Dragon Warrior episode was really the most nostalgic thing for me but a lot of times we're playing games that we've never touched before. I think that's one of the more exciting things that we do on this show is pull out really weird and random games. And even like last month, something like a Twisted Metal 2, I had never played it before, so I had no nostalgia for it. But these games, I have a really strong nostalgia for both of them. And, you know, the Game Boy growing up, I think we've talked about it before. I I was really into it. I borrowed Friends Game Boys a lot before I got my own. And I remember, this is such a cliche, but it happened to me a lot, playing the Game Boy with the light on it at night when you're supposed to be asleep and you hear your mom coming up the stairs, so you turn everything <laughs> off, your, or you at least turn the light off, turn the volume all the way down, pretend you're sleeping kind of thing. I did that many times. And like Dragon Warrior, this is going to be hard to kind of separate my nostalgia from these games, which is why playing them with the community and reading the forum threads of people who have never played them, or talking to Corey, he'd never played Mario Land 2, so his opinions of it were kind of surprising to me. So I wanted to ask you... You've mentioned on the show before that you weren't a big Game Boy person growing up, but I think you mentioned that you had one in the family anyway. So do you have any recollection of playing these two games when you were younger at all?
0: Yeah, I mean, I played the first game growing up. This is my first time playing the second game. With the first game, it was mainly just on family trips, like in the car on the way to destinations. My brother had one, as I mentioned before, he's 12 years younger than I am. So I did pick up the Game Boy, I did play it some, but I never really put any time into this. The game I played mostly on the Game Boy was probably baseball, and just didn't do a lot of Mario. He actually had Zelda as well, and I just kind of piddled around with Zelda, and then also Tetris. So those were, I think, the four games that he, oh, he had Quirk as well.
1: Oh, Quark is a great game.
0: Yeah, it is a great little puzzle game. And so those are basically the five games I remember that he had growing up. And, uh, of course, I have all those games in my collection now, but I've never put any time into those Mario games, which you may find surprising. But I didn't own my own Game Boy until I was uh, much older, as I mentioned before with Night Quest. I'm just really now digging into that Game Boy library and enjoying it a lot. And uh, I'm very happy to have played these games this month.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, I guess we can get into this story because it's very basic in both games. In Mario Land 1, there's an alien named Tatanga who has kidnapped Princess Daisy. And it's worth noting that this is Princess Daisy's debut. Yes. And that Luigi, Toad, and Peach are not present in this game. Mm -hmm. And again, that's a fact that I pulled from Norm's video that it's apparent on the face of it, but then you don't think about these kind of things. So it's good to have (laughs) somebody point it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you have to rescue Daisy and defeat Tatanga. And the story of the second game, and this is how they tie into each other, is that during the events of the first game when you're rescuing Daisy, Wario has taken over your castle, and you have to reclaim your castle from Wario.
0: By collecting six coins, right, that opens the door to the final castle.
1: Yes. So that's your story in a very concise way, which is one of the cool things about playing a handheld game. Actually, when we did Final Fantasy Adventure, I couldn't recount the story. I had such a hard time with it, so it's not necessarily inherent to a Game Boy game. But in this case, very simple stories, and I thought it was cool. Again, in Norm's video when he pointed out that they actually do tie into each other and it is actually a sequel. And again, you wouldn't necessarily know that from playing the game, I don't think. But he found that somewhere in his research, reading the manuals or however. So I thought that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, and it's important to know that there is a third game based on Wario, but it was called Super Mario Land 3, but Wario headlines that game, which we'll probably talk about later, but it's also in Norm's video, so if you're mm-hmm. watching that video, you'll be hearing about that too, but it's actually the third game in that series where basically the story is that since Wario has been displaced from Mario's castle, he's trying to collect money to buy his own, and <laughs> there's that too, so I just thought I'd throw that in while we're talking about story.
1: Awesome. All right, so let's get into gameplay. It's typical Mario on the face of it. These are platformers. Mario Land 1 has a few shoot-em-up spaceship levels. Mario Land 2 has a few variants to the gameplay, like the space world. There's variations in the gravity and physics, which are noteworthy. But for the most part, you do have Mario platforming, with many familiar elements, but because of these games being on the Game Boy, there are certain limitations with the hardware, and there are also certain creative ways that they were able to change up the gameplay. There are some unique power-ups in both games that aren't present in any other Mario games. You know, Nintendo does this a lot. It's been documented well over the years that Nintendo, they have so many, (laughs) they seem to have so many good ideas that they can just throw out good ideas as if they're disposable. If you play any Mario game, Galaxy especially, it's been well documented that there's just so many ideas that are just used in one level and never used again. So this is present here, like the rabbit ears in Mario Land 2. Yeah. So yeah, let's get into some of the gameplay and platforming elements of these games. There's been a lot of talk on our forums, especially about the physics of both games, the differences between controlling Mario. So for me, as I was playing, I was just tuned in like a Mario Land 1 physics, like I was kind of fine with it because it was like getting on a bike, you know. It's almost like going back and playing something like a Castlevania or a Battletoads. They have their own gameplay feels to the physics and movement of the characters. But for you, going back and maybe not having so much of the nostalgia, how did you feel about the controlling?
0: You know, um, in the first game, I actually thought the controls were... Really good. I enjoyed it. I know that, you know, a lot of people on our forum say that there's quite a bit of difference in the physics in this game and in the original Mario titles on the NES and then also in Super Mario Land 2. The jumping and the falling in those games tends to be a little more floaty and a little slower, whereas in Mario Land, it seems like when you drop, you drop fairly quickly. A lot of people said the controls are a little more stiff, which I didn't find that much. I think a big thing for me is that I did play these games, as I mentioned before, on the Super Game Boy, and being able to play it on a bigger screen, I know it sounds odd, but it just didn't feel as clunky to me as I think maybe it did to a lot of people. You know, it shouldn't have a big effect on gameplay when you play on a bigger screen, but for me, I thought it did. I, I didn't have any problems with the jumping or anything like that that a lot of people noted. So I can see what they're talking about. I can see that it's there, especially in the falling physics. But as far as in the platforming, you know, it just felt second nature to any other platforming game I'd played before.
1: Yeah. And you might be surprised to hear this, but I actually agree with your assessment that playing it on a TV was easier because I played it first on the Vita, And then this morning, I played through it on the Wii, and I had a much easier time playing it on the Wii, so I can actually totally see what you're saying, and there's actually lag when you play with the Wii, because the controller's wireless, and you're emulating, and I'm playing on a huge LCD screen, but still, I was able to get through it easier than playing it on the Vita, so I can totally get what you're saying there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm playing with a Super Game Boy through my Super Nintendo on a CRT, so, you know, the lag's not there with more modern systems yeah, and sure. uh, HDMI. So, uh, yeah, I, I just found it much better and, and much more fluid playing it that way. And uh, I beat this game in the first sitting, in like 45 minutes. The, the first one, that is. The second one, uh, it took me a little bit longer to, do, to to do that. But just to kind of mention the second game, did not have any problem with any of the physics. It felt, I would say, more like a Mario game than the first game as far as the physics were concerned.
1: Yeah, totally agree. The quote-unquote problems with Mario 1, they kind of ironed them out to make Mario 2 more like a regular, uh, I don't want to say regular, but more in tune with the mainline Mario titles, most obviously Super Mario World.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And one thing they put back in was that Mario can kind of skid as you change direction. Um, Mm Yeah. In Mario 1, it's very sturdy, I guess you would say, whereas in Mario Land 2, you need a little bit of skidding, and and when you jump, I, I don't know, it's hard to explain. Some people on the forum said in, in 1, he just drops like a rock, which I... Don't agree completely. It's not like a Simon Belmont Castlevania 1 yeah. kind of drops like a rock, but there's a little something to that whereas in Mario Land 2 it's a little more floaty to use a buzzword, but um mm-hmm. I don't know again, I was just kind of locked in like I know both of these games so well that it was hard not to just be locked into muscle memory on both of them. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I guess so. I mean, this is, like I said, really the first time i had been playing these games. And though I could feel the controls were a little bit different, I didn't have any issues. I feel like other people maybe had some issues, but it felt natural to me. And so I couldn't really tell a huge difference in control. Just my opinion, but, uh, you know, to each their own. Awesome. Well, I think we got to talk about Super Mario Land is 12 stages. It's a really short game. It's basically four worlds with three levels each. So, this is a game that can be completed under an hour. And, Sean, I know you're a fan of short games. So, I'm sure you didn't have a problem with this at all, right?
1: It's funny. It took me a couple days to beat it on the Vita because I was playing it on my lunch breaks at work. But then, actually, you know, playing it this morning on the Wii, it was easy to just bust right through it. Yeah, it is a very short game, but, you know, some games can be short and sweet, you know, especially throwing back to the original Game Boy. And again, not inherent to Game Boy games to be short, but I thought it was fine. I mean, to put myself in the scope of, you know, are you getting your money's worth or whatever, that's really a moot point at this point. The game's 30 years old, so I just thought it was fine as far as the length of it.
0: Yeah, and Super Mario Land 2, a little longer, I would say at least two hours to beat through completion, though it, it took me a lot longer on that final stage in the Castle of <laughs> Wario, and I guess that's something that we could talk about right now as far as gameplay was that difficulty spike, which a lot of people pointed out on the forum.
1: Yeah, the first game is relatively easy as soon as you get used to the physics, and the second game is mostly easy until you get to the final castle. And I had forgotten that the final castle is just one level. I ended up getting through it using safe states, to be quite honest with you. But yeah. I actually played the slot machine game with 999 coins, and I hit the 75 live Ah. jackpot, and I didn't even cheat. I intended to save state until I hit that, but I actually hit it on the first try, so I had like 80 lives or something when I went into the castle, so I could have beat it the straight way, but I went through with save states, and it is quite challenging, and as most people can attest, you're better off using the bunny ears because... The bunny ears, we should say, the only power-up they have is to allow you to drift. Yeah. Much like the cape in Super Mario World, where you can hold it and you just fall much slower.
0: Yeah, or the um, Tanuki suit tail in Super Mario Brothers 3. Yeah.
1: So that's all they do, but for the platforming and jumping challenges of that final level, they come in way more handy than the Fire Flower does. Yeah. I totally could identify everybody calling it a difficulty spike. Totally get that. And I kind of just cheated my way through it as I usually do. (laughs) But, uh, I promise you, I swear hand to God, I've beaten this when I was a kid. I've beaten it in the past on legit hardware the real way. But, um, this time I just kind of cheesed my way through it with save States.
0: I was curious about that. I wanted to see how you had gotten through that last level. Yeah. Um, Because you'd mentioned it, uh, that you'd beaten the game online. But I wanted to save it for the call to find out how you actually did that.
1: But what about you? Did you have a hard time with it, or were you able to knock it out quickly?
0: Well, I'll say this. The game is very generous with lives. And I would say the same thing about the first game. I didn't do the 999 coin deal during the bonus game. Which we should mention, both games have a bonus game in them. But this is specific to Mario Land 2, where in the first game you collect coins just like in the other Mario games. If you get 100 coins, you get an extra life. In Mario Land 2, you collect coins to use at this little hut and play this sort of wheel and the price is right. You spin it and you hit it at a certain time and it stops on uh, you know certain number of lives or other type of bonus Both games are very generous with lives. I had probably about 75 going into the last level, and I ended up finishing the game with probably about 30 to 35 lives left.
1: Wow, okay.
0: So that's just a testament of how many times I had to play that last level. And the other thing about the last level that increases the difficulty spike is typically in each world in Super Mario Land 2, there's a bell that you can ring about midway through it, and that is your halfway point, and you can start from there. Much like Super Mario World, how you have the finish line tape that you can cut through and start halfway through the level. Yep. With this final castle, you can't do that. So you have to learn all the aspects of that castle to be able to beat it. And that final boss, which I'm sure we're going to talk about later, Mario is not a cakewalk. Defeating him, there is a certain strategy to it, but you have to go through three battles to beat him. If you die during that battle, you basically have to start that whole level again. So the difficulty spike is present, and uh, it's tough because the rest of the game is fairly simple and straightforward, you know?
1: Yeah, you bring up a good point of the manual in-game checkpoints of Mario Land 2, because in Mario Land 1, they're almost random, and they're super generous. I don't know if you notice, if you die in Mario Land 1, you're... Almost always just put right back where you were. Yeah. And I don't know if that's a testament to how short the levels are, how short the game is, but I felt the the checkpoints were just super generous in the first game. But as you pointed out, there's an in-game manual checkpoint, you and you have <laughs> yeah. to ring that bell, <laughs> otherwise you don't get it. So good point on that.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know while we're kind of talking about the end of each stage and ringing the bell. There's actually a bell in Super Mario Land 2 that you could ring at the end of it to actually go into the bonus game, which is like a claw machine, right?
1: Yeah, there's actually two different ones in that oh, in yeah, Mario yeah, that's Land 2. Right.
0: There's the uh, dynamite fuse or whatever.
1: Yeah, so yeah, there is a claw game, which if you get good at it, that's another way to really farm lives mm-hmm. because there's a three up.
0: I learned that pretty quick too, yep.
1: Yeah, so if you get good at it, you can grab those almost every time and the lives just pile up. And then there's another one with, like you said, there's like fuses that go up on these grid kind of patterns and there's little mice biting the wires that (laughs) flash around and you have to hit the right fuse and then a spark travels up the fuse and it avoids the mice where they're chewing the wire and it gives you some kind of power up or extra lives.
2: Yeah.
0: Instead of the flagpole like you get at the end of the first Super Mario game, there's two entrances. There's one that's way up high and there's one at the bottom. If you go through the bottom one, you just go to the next level. But if you can make it to the top one, you get a bonus game as well. So there's actually a bonus live game in that. and uh, It's sort of like the wire game where stuff just kind of flashes around at random. And instead of mice, there's like a ladder. And you go up and down that ladder and you can get one two three lives or you can get a fire flower right
1: yep and before we get corrections it's not a fire flower it's a super ball
0: well it's still a fire flower you just don't get fireballs you get a super ball so it's still a fire flower
1: okay <laughs> that's fair um that's
0: my opinion and i'm sticking to it Speaking of the Super Bowl, let's talk about that for a minute. Because that's something that's very different in the Mario Land games.
1: Yeah. At first glance, it seems like a fire flower. Because as you mentioned, you get it from a flower. But it's not a fireball, It's a Super Bowl. Yep. And the physics are very different, where, as in Super Mario Brothers on the NES, you shoot the thing and it just bounces across the ground.
0: Yeah, fairly flat, fairly linear.
1: Yeah, and in Super Mario Land, the Super Ball bounces up into the air and around and it ricochets off the ceiling and any kind of platforms or blocks that are in the level. Some people didn't like this. I think it's fine. Uh, It's something different. And also you can use it to collect coins. If you shoot it, whatever coins it it hits, you get those.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest physical difference in it is you can only throw one at a time. With fireballs, you could usually, I think, throw about three of those at one time, which the fireballs return in Super Mario Land 2, which we should mention. But with the Superball, it's one at a time. So that has to either hit something or time out before you can throw another one.
1: Yep. And that is the only power-up in the first game. So that's kind of just a variation of the first Super Mario Brothers. So let's talk about some of the environments. Actually, in both games, they're both very interesting. In the first game, you have worlds like Easter Island and China.
0: It's very... (laughs) Ancient China. There's a... Kind of a water-themed level. It's not all in water, but uh, there's always water around. And then there's also an Egyptian motif as well, which is the first few levels. And we should mention the entire land that you're coming to save, Princess Daisy, is called Sarasa Land. The alien who's taken over has basically turned all the inhabitants against you. The environments are very odd and very different and very themed, unlike some of the other Mario games.
1: Yeah, there's some really unique stuff. Because if you think of other Mario games, like just think of 3 or World or New Super Mario Brothers, you're going to get a water world, you're going to get an ice level, you're going to get you know, a, desert, a fire maybe. level, a desert. Right, yeah. exactly. So to have these unique things like <laughs> ancient China, I, I love it. I think it's one of those things where you know and we'll get into the unique enemies and the the power-ups well we already talked about the power-ups i actually love this stuff because if you don't do that you end up in a situation like the new super mario brothers series where people complain that the games are all the same and yeah. to an extent they kind of are as good as you think they are or whatever you gotta admit they're all very samey and if you took a quick glance at one you couldn't tell it apart from the other but when you see the little <laughs> i took this from norm's video they're called gyeongshi the jumping vampires in the china land yeah it's like you're never going to see that in any other mario <laughs> game you know like you know exactly what you're looking at as soon as you see it like that's mario land one so yeah
0: and i like that aspect of taking something that is apart. part of that culture and you know putting it into a game i think that's very neat
1: yeah i thought it was awesome so the lands in super mario land 2 are a little bit more conventional but as you mentioned before there's still a ton of creativity and they refer them. to them as
0: zones actually
1: okay that's a good good word for it you do have a water zone and a couple more conventional ones but there's a lot of creativity in like the pumpkin zone or like you were saying the macro zone where you're smaller. It's like a honey, I shrunk the kids kind of thing and you're fighting the ants and everything in this house. So I thought even though they were kind of leaning towards being more conventional in Mario Land 2, it's still very unique and you're seeing a bunch of stuff that maybe we'll never see again in a mainstream Nintendo game.
0: Yeah, I don't think you're going to see any more Jason Voorhees right. walking mask with uh, <laughs> right. knives in their heads, like coming at you in a Super Mario game again. So, uh, yeah, that was kind of cool. Um, I'll just name off the zones. I've written those down. So, oh, good. The tree zone, the turtle zone the pumpkin zone and macro zone as you mentioned there's one called the mario zone and then another one called space zone that has some uh, really kind of floaty mechanics in it and it's very interesting and much different from the other ones but i'm like you i i really love how all these zones are just so different and it makes the game more interesting and not samey as you pointed out did you have a favorite zone
1: that's a great question I don't know. I really love this game. I love two, especially. I think it's it might be my favorite Game Boy game. Okay. Um, the only competition for this game, as far as favorite Game Boy game, would be Castlevania Two, uh, okay. Belmont's Revenge on Game Boy. That's they're probably neck and neck for my favorite Game Boy games, and probably in my top like twenty of all time favorite games. So it's hard for me to say I have a favorite. Zone or least favorite zone. I really like the space zone for the music. I think the music in that zone in particular is great. And I love that you have to go in this intermediate level where you jump into a bubble. And the funny thing about this level is you can just float with the bubble to the top of the screen and scroll the whole screen. It's an auto scroller it's just a weird thing. You have to play this level to get to the zone. So it's unique in that way. And I love the music and the physics there. So, um, what about you? That's a great question.
0: Zone? uh, I mean, I like the pumpkin zone, of course, because I'm a horror fan. And just the the presence of uh, creepy things and the Jason Voorhees sprites were just great. I'm like you. I really like the space zone, too. I like the extra challenge of it being a little floatier. I like the part where you have to jump between those angry stars. I thought that was really cool. But yeah, I don't know if I would call Super Mario Land 2 my favorite Game Boy game. I really love Zelda Link's Awakening on the Game Boy. I don't know if that's one you've played before, and I really like Final Fantasy Adventure a lot. So I would definitely say these Mario games, as far as what's on the Game Boy, they're definitely up there, definitely top ten worthy. And I've also been playing through Super Mario Land 3, which um, if you want to give me a minute to talk about that, I could.
1: Yeah, I would absolutely love to hear that. I knew you were going to talk about this. I wish I had had time to jump into it, but I didn't. So let's hear your take on it. Did you play through the whole thing?
0: I did not play through the whole thing, but I played through enough of it to generate a good opinion on how I feel about the game. If you're a big fan of uh, Super Mario Land 2, I think you'll be a big fan of this as well. And I definitely encourage you especially to play this since you like that game so much. It's a bit different. Of course, you play as Wario, and as I mentioned, the story is basically you get booted out of Mario's castle, and so you're going around trying to collect money to build a better castle. Well, what's kind of cool about this game is, depending on the amount of treasures that are hidden throughout the game that you can find, your castle gets better and better, and I think the lowest one you can get is like a tree stump, and then if you collect all the treasures, or a good amount of the treasures, you know, your castle expands into something that's super magnificent. One of the biggest differences is it has some, uh, I would say, Metroidvania elements to it, where you can get power ups and go back through the game uh, to locate certain treasures. And so that's a really, really neat aspect to it. It has some really cool power ups too. It has like a dragon head that breathes fire. It has bull horns, which you can bust through walls quicker. And then it also has a jet pack, which allows you to fly for a limited amount of time over open spaces, uh, which can help you get to different hidden areas in levels and especially in finding those hidden treasures. So. I would say it's one that's definitely worth your time checking out, Sean, and for all of our other listeners. I kind of wish that we would have included it in this playthrough, but it is a more Wario-themed game, and I think that Super Mario Land basically just added the title to it for purposes of being able to sell the game, so... It is different, but it is a continuation of the story in the series. And as I think we mentioned that Daisy, this was her first appearance ever in Super Mario Land. In Super Mario Land 2, this is the first appearance of Wario. And so he gets his own series, which is really cool because he's become such an iconic figure in the Mario franchise, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I definitely want to check it out. So I'm glad you took time to dip your toes in that game, and I, I will check it out. So we talked a lot about the environments, the zones, and the different levels in both games, but I want to touch just on the graphics in general because both games definitely have a different look, and I think in general you can say that the first game, Super Mario Land 1, is more analogous to Super Mario Brothers on the NES, and that mm-hmm. Super Mario Land 2 is more analogous to Super Mario World on the Super Nintendo. I think... If you look at it that way, then both games can kind of stand on their own graphically. But because Super Mario World on the Super Nintendo is maybe my favorite game of all time, I think that's another reason that I kind of lean into Super Mario Land 2 is because just graphically it's so familiar to me and so in tune with the artwork of the Mario universe that I like the most. But... Super Mario Land 1 also kind of fits into the whole pastiche of Mario because it's, like I said, it's closer to Super Mario Brothers on the NES. So again, I just have no complaints about either one, and I think they did a really good job with the technology they had at the time. As we said, Mario Land 1 was a launch title, so they were working with their knowledge of this handheld console that they had just developed And then later on, as more talent came in and they they started realizing what they could do, they improved it dramatically for Mario Land 2 as far as the graphics go.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that statement, and you kind of hit the nail on the head with that. I think the first game is a launch title, so it's very early in the Game Boy's life, so from that early concept of this being just a continuation of the game and watch this is a big step up but they didn't realize what they could do on this system and so the sprite work in super mario land 2 and even in super mario land 3 the wario game it's fantastic it really shows off the capabilities of a system that is very very simple yeah so yeah i think that it's just a reflection of the time and just a reflection of what they realized that they could do with this. The sprite work in Super Mario Land 2 are much bigger than they are in the first game, and so I think for that reason they're a lot more detailed and very reminiscent of Super Mario World on the Super Nintendo, even to the point of you're able to do the little spin jump to break blocks. It's very similar, and from what I understand... Super Mario Land 2 was going to be kind of an off-the-rails game, like no other Mario game you'd ever seen, but it got shelved when they brought it up in some of the meetings and they decided to go with a style that was more like Super Mario World, which came before Super Mario Land 2 and was a huge success.
1: To the music.
0: Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, oh, yes.
1: <laughs> this is a lot of nostalgia for me. And I, again, I'll just shout out Hirozako Tanaka, composer for the first game, and Kazumi Totaka, composer for the second game. Again, some differing opinions on the forum about mm-hmm. the music in each one of these games, but I think, for my money, both games have fantastic music. I adore it. The first game has kind of a ragtimey y feel. Actually, the first game starts with a ragtimey feel, but then as you go through the worlds, they're appropriate to the environments. And in the second game... They did kind of the same thing that they did in Super Mario World where they have variations on a theme. Sometimes you'll go in like the pumpkin zone. The music's a little creepy and slower, but it's still the same song, which I think is great. I love that kind of stuff. There's one thing I want to point out before I forget is that there's one word that I think I can use to describe the music in Mario Land 2, and that word is squeaky. (laughs) <laughs> there's like a quality to some of the sounds that are used in the music that just sounds squeaky to me. In Pumpkin Zone, there's like a like in the background. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even in the Space Zone, which I really love, there's a part in one of the songs that sounds like that as well. This has a squeaky quality to it. But man, I love this music. And somebody, um, I think it was uh, Bickman who posted the piano cover of the first song from Super Mario Land 1. It's just so good. So yeah. good.
0: <laughs> I think now with music and games, it's so orchestral. Do you know what I mean? And then when you look back at these older games, it's so chip tuny. Oh, and yeah. And so it's hard to say, oh, this is great, because it is that chip tune style. But... I love that kind of stuff, and you know, I think you and I both listen to a lot of Vaporwave, so it's very nostalgic for me, and I have a great appreciation for the simplicity of it, but how well it sounds. Yeah. It seems like a very simple process, but to be able to put those sounds together into a tune, uh, I think it's just incredible. And let's just go ahead and say, that last song when you beat Super Mario Land, the first game one of the best renditions of the Mario theme music ever it's beautiful
1: yeah and you bring up a good point when you say like modern games are very orchestral I mean how many shows have we done where we get to this part of the show and I say music like eh, I don't know unmemorable like it served its purpose I don't remember it at all we've both said that many times on many occasions now playing a game like this it really does point out again it's like I was talking about earlier with movies some progressions into technology just they don't serve us well from an artistic perspective I get like we can go in and make some orchestral score for a game the same way we can a movie but you know I don't remember the music from whatever modern game that you just recorded an orchestra and threw it on a game like it was a movie I do remember, and I will always remember, the tune for Mario. Land. Did 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 it like I? Yeah. It's just embedded in my DNA. That song
0: and Zelda games like that. You know the original Zelda. Yeah. I mean, Punch Out. Any of those like original games. I mean, they're just so memorable. And you know, like you said before, you get so much of that samey orchestral sound that it just becomes white noise.
1: That's a good way to put it. Now let me ask you this: Did you ever do this when you were a kid? add your own words to the songs
0: (laughs) i'm sure i'm sure i did but uh yeah um i don't remember any of those if i did do you
1: no i don't but i know i used to do it and i playing uh especially mario land one i know i had um i know i had a few but either i can't remember them or let's just say i wouldn't want (laughs) to
0: I wouldn't want to go into it. Uh, I think we would. I think we might want to go into that. No,
1: it's nothing embarrassing. I actually thought that um, when I was a kid, I thought, this is really dumb, but there was a Publisher's Clearinghouse commercial, and the melodies of it, whatever song was in that commercial, was very similar to uh, one of the melodies in the Super Mario Land music. So I remember when I was a kid in my head, I used to sing... Like, the publisher's clearinghouse, like, over the (laughs) Super Mario Land music, right?
2: (laughs) Oh,
0: man, it's great how young minds work. I find that with my kids, they kind of do the same thing, where they'll just make up words to, um, you know, different melodies and stuff. It's pretty awesome. So, uh, yeah, it's great to be young.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right, man, well, uh, let's go ahead and get into our final thoughts. I thought we would maybe let our good friend Metal Fro, the Game Boy guru, tell us his thoughts on Super Mario Land and Super Mario Land 2. Hello,
4: Playcast crew. This is your pal Metal Fro from RF Generation and Shoot the Corecast. I wanted to say thank you for inviting me to contribute to this episode. As you both know, the Game Boy is near and dear to my heart, and the Super Mario Land titles hold a special place for me as well. I thought I'd give you a little of my personal history on the games. I remember being blown away by Super Mario Land when I first played it in early 1990. A friend let me play his Game Boy, and I was captivated by it. So much so that it inspired me to save money for one, which ultimately led me to getting a Game Boy of my own right at my 12th birthday. While I didn't get Super Mario Land right away, it wasn't long before it was in my collection. Over the years, I've played through and beat the game numerous times. It's one I go back to at least annually because of its unique locations, fun gameplay, excellent soundtrack, and just how much I enjoy it. I have a ton of nostalgia for the game. Even though its successor is, technically speaking, a better game, I just have so much love for this first entry that I prefer it slightly. By the time the second Mario Land game was released, I had moved on from the Game Boy and was on to the Sega Genesis, so I missed out on the game at first. Years later, when I bought a Game Boy Color, I bought a new-in-the-box copy of Super Mario Land 2 and was delighted to find that the game was quite the technical leap from the first Portable Mario adventure. The various worlds were fun to explore, the large sprites and animation were a treat, and Wario made for a compelling villain, in a Superman-bizarro sort of way. I wasn't as keen on the music, with its variations-on-a-theme approach, but on the whole, it's a pretty great experience. If only that big difficulty spike in the castle wasn't so annoying. Either way, it's a welcome sequel, and certainly a great game in its own right. Not only that, but as you know, Wario has gone on to star in many of his own games, and has become a well-loved character in the Nintendo tradition. I thought it was funny that you picked these two Super Mario Land titles for July, because it coincided well with the 30th anniversary of the Game Boy launch in North America. Back in April, I did a live stream to celebrate the Game Boy's 30th anniversary for the Japanese launch, and I played a full run of Super Mario Land then and beat the game. But I had no problem going back and doing that again on stream. What I find interesting is that, Despite loving the first game and playing it frequently over the years, I'd never gone back and played the game on the harder difficulty that unlocks after you beat it. So, after beating Tatanga and going back to the title screen, I jumped right back in, and my first time on the harder difficulty, I beat it on stream. It was different enough an experience from the main game that I can say it's worth doing, and for those that don't find the main game very difficult, give the harder mode a try. It's not especially difficult, but it's no pushover either. The new enemy placements and additions may surprise you, and you might find that you have trouble in a couple spots you otherwise would have breezed through. When playing Super Mario Land 2 for the month, I also accomplished something I'd never done before. I played through the whole game, minus a couple bonus areas, in one sitting. Super Mario Land 2 is definitely longer than its predecessor, but even factoring in all the bonus stuff, it's not a particularly long experience. I think the overworld and minigames help add it out a bit and make it feel bigger than it actually is. The whole thing took me about two and a half hours to beat, and that included many, many, MANY deaths in the castle leading up to the confrontation with Wario, and having to go back and play the slot machine game to earn a few more lives to help me get through it. I always thought the game was longer but some of that was probably factoring in deaths, retries, going to the minigame more frequently, and searching for the exits to the bonus levels. All in all, though, I understand why most people prefer Mario's second portable outing to the first, and each time I play through it, I have a new appreciation for just how much Nintendo squeezed out of the gray brick. Between Super Mario Land 2 and The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening, Nintendo certainly got a lot more from the Game Boy than I think anyone would have guessed upon its launch just three years prior. It continues to impress to this day. Thanks again for allowing me to share some thoughts about the Super Mario Land games. Happy podcasting!
1: All right, thank you, Josh. Good thoughts there. So we can roll into our final thoughts, Rich. I think I've already kind of spilled the beans here. These <laughs> games are so precious to me. I can't be objective with these games. I've been playing them for so long. I mean, as gamers go, we go way back. You to the Atari, and I had an Atari when I was young, but really my I came into gaming with the NES and the Game Boy, so I can't separate my nostalgia from any kind of objective feelings I would have about these games and for what it's worth I believe they are really good games you know like we looked at Dragon Warrior and I can as nostalgic as I am for that game it's very easy uh, you know to recognize how that game has aged and the you know the so-called flaws in it but I think You know, with Mario Land 1 and 2, they both really, really hold up well, and like I said, Mario Land 2 is one of my favorite games of all time. I just remember playing through it constantly, and... I want to point out that I played the Super Mario Land 2 DX fan mod, which is that full color mod, cool. and I just want to shout that out because it's really a beautiful job that was done by Torus on romhacking.net. You can grab the patch for that if you want to play that version of the game. It's totally different from just playing it on like a Game Boy Color or Super Game Boy, like They really colored it in a way that makes it look like it was made for a console. So I just want to throw that out there. And there is, I haven't acquired it yet, but there's also a patch for the first game as well. I don't know if it was done by the same people, but there's a DX version fan hack of Mario Land 1 as well. And they actually changed the sprite of Mario, which led to a little criticism, so I'm not exactly sure, but I can say in the in the second game, they didn't change any of the graphics at all. They just colorized everything in, in such a brilliant and beautiful way that I highly, highly recommend if you have access to that kind of stuff to check it out.
0: Cool. Well, for me, I really have no nostalgia at all when it comes to these games, and I can say objectively that I really enjoyed playing both of these games, and as I mentioned before, I would probably put both of them in the top ten as far as what is available on the Game Boy as far as what I've played so far. I don't know if I enjoyed playing one more than I enjoyed playing the other. I think both of them have their own merits. One of the things that I really liked in the first game, which we just barely touched on, were the shmup stages. I thought those were really done well. They were very, very easy. But I just thought it was just a neat thing to add into the game. And um, from what I understand, Miyamoto wanted to have these in the original Mario Brothers, but they just couldn't get the controls right. And so they ended up not including it in that game. But with Super Mario Land, they decided to add two shmup stages in. And one of those even being the final boss battle, which, uh, you know... I thought it was kind of cool. It's not your typical, what I would call, quote-unquote, Mario Fair, but I still enjoyed it a lot, and I thought they just did such a great job with it. You know, speaking of Mario Fair, I think one of the things that we should definitely talk about, and what people say about the first, is that they feel that it's not a, quote, Mario title. It doesn't feel right. I don't know how you feel about it, but that's something that I very much disagree with. I think that this game feels exactly like a Mario title. When I'm playing it, I know I'm playing a Mario game. There's no doubt in my mind. A lot of the enemies are very similar. Now, I realize that the turtles explode. Big deal. It doesn't make it any different than any other Mario game. I mean... If you look at the original Mario game, there's enemies that you can't even jump on. The spike shells. So what's the difference in something that you can't jump on or if something you jump on that it explodes? It's just a different iteration of an enemy. And as the Mario series has shown us over the years, there's various types of enemies. And that list continues to grow. So I just don't think that that's a reason to say that this isn't a Mario game. We mentioned the physics before. Yeah, a little different, but like I said, I mean, it still feels, uh, I'm just going to make up this word, very Mario y to me. <laughs> so <laughs> I just want to get your thoughts on that as well.
1: I agree with you, but I would pose that it's very subjective in the same way that a game like the North American version of Super Mario Bros. 2 which is a port of a different game, a different Famicom agree. game that had nothing to do with Mario. But the physics in that game are nothing like the first game. But for me, I love Super Mario Bros. 2 North America. Again, it's it's actually one of my favorite Mario games. So I think it's subjective. And I, I agree with you that uh, Mario Land 1 and 2 are perfectly fine as what you would call a quote-unquote proper Mario game. But I can empathize with people who would not agree with that and again the games are there to please them and they can be their own gatekeepers on that absolutely
0: all right sean i gotta say man i'm so happy that you picked these two games for the month of july so uh thank you so much for hosting and allowing me to play two games that i never got to play in my childhood
1: yeah, that's awesome, and I'm, I'm just thinking back. I was the one who hosted the Mario World and Super Mario 3 month that we did, so this is a cool throwback And I'm not the Nintendo guy on the site. I'm the (laughs) furthest thing from a Nintendo person in general. I love Nintendo. I love the games, but I'm not a cheerleader for it in the way that some people are or in the way that I'm a cheerleader for other things. So it's really cool and really gratifying to be able to pump up these games that I love so much.
0: Yeah, and I just want to thank, again, all the people that played these games with us in July. And speaking of games we're playing, let's go ahead and talk about what we're going to be playing in August and September. Now, since I'm hosting in August, uh, as you know, we mentioned on our last show, we're going to be playing Danganronpa 2, Goodbye Despair, on the Vita, and on the PlayStation 4. I've already started, Sean, and i got to say, I'm just going to put this disclaimer out there, It starts off a little slow in the prologue. There's not a lot of action that's going on. It kind of sets up the game. If you've played the first game, then you understand what the setup is and what's coming. But I have to say, and I mentioned this on the forums, just stick with it through the prologue. And then the game just sort of ramps up after that. It's a neat game. I think I've described it as 999 meets Phoenix Wright. Plus, I would probably add some Persona. Into it as well, because there are relationships in this game that you can cultivate. So yeah, it's a really fun game. I've really enjoyed it so far, and uh, I'm just now kind of getting into chapter one. So if you're listening to this, please join us for Danganronpa 2. You do not have to play the first game. Before you play the second one, you can just jump right in.
1: Although, I want to point out a very interesting phenomenon that's going on on the forums, and I want to go (laughs) on record because this is something to follow up on when we record next month, is a few people decided to play the first game first, so there's a lot of forum discussion going on about the first game, and I'm all for it because you and I have both played the first game, so... To the people who chose to play the first one, they wanna throw their opinions on it on the forums, go for it, that's actually kind of awesome because both of these games are pretty beefy. So if people are willing to put in the time to go through the first game and then hopefully they're not fatigued and they wanna come and join us (laughs) on the second game, which was our original intent, that is amazing and awesome. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the month, especially in light of the fact that I haven't even started the second game yet. Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this plays out and to record the episode for this game.
0: Yeah, I got a little anxiety after seeing that people were playing the first game. because I was like, "Uh, well, if they don't like the first game, they may not like the second game. But uh, I have to say that uh, Mr. Stubbs... And Crabmaster 2000 are the two that are playing the first game. And they seem to be enjoying that first game a lot. So uh, yeah. I was very comforted to see that. So speaking of games that we're going to jump into the middle of, let's right. talk about what we're <laughs> playing in September, Sean.
1: Yeah, so in September, again, I'll just spoil it. My final thoughts. I love this game <laughs> so much. It's... Uh, <laughs>
0: awesome we don't have to record that episode
1: yeah <laughs> no show in September <laughs> uh no it's Saints Row the third which is from the Saints Row series which was a series of games that kind of came out and people know it as a quote-unquote Grand Theft Auto clone I've dabbled in Saints Row one and two but as with a lot of people Saints Row the third really made a big splash and I adore this game and I'm interested to kind of go back to it because I think open world games and sandbox games, they're a genre that progresses very quickly. So if you jump back and play Grand Theft Auto 3, for example, you might be able to still recognize it as a great game, but there's a lot of things that aren't in that game, like just auto aim, for example, that you can toggle on and off. So... I'm very interested to go back to Saints Row 3, but I can promise you no matter how I feel about the game, we're going to talk a lot about the music because there's some of the best licensed music in a Uh, game ever (laughs) is present in Saints Row the 3rd. So I'm super psyched to play this game for September. for another episode thank you for listening and for participating in the playthroughs in september we'll take a look at the open world sandbox crime action extravaganza known as saints row the third which is available for microsoft windows playstation 3 xbox 360 linux and the nintendo switch be sure to log on to the forums at rfgeneration.com And we'll see you next time on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow. Bow.
4: Isn't it about time you sent in that Publishers Clearinghouse entry?
3: (laughs) Nobody ever really wins those things. So what's the rush? That's what I used
4: to think. You gotta rush because January 29th is coming fast. That's when Publishers Clearinghouse announces the winning number for $10 million right on TV. So stop making excuses. Only Publishers Clearinghouse can make you so rich, so fast. So enter. There's no
2: Send it in. (laughs)